Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. New U.S. sanctions on Iran took effect today. Since one second, President Trump pulled the U.S. out of the international nuclear deal. The sanctions target Iran's shipping, financial, and energy sectors, all key to the country's already struggling economy. The bombs, which the FBI referred to as improvised explosive devices, were sent to the FBI's bomb laboratory in Quantico, Virginia. We're in Mexico again tonight as thousands of migrants try to find a faster way to the U.S. border. The White House says it's now getting help from the Mexican Breaking news out of Pittsburgh. The man accused in the shooting at the uh, synagogue in Pittsburgh is pleading not guilty, and he also wants a jury trial. You can see he's facing a 44 counsel. In the final seconds before the Boeing 737 Max crashed into the water, it was traveling at more than 500 kilometers an hour. All 189 people on board were killed. You've now entered the House of Mystery. Crime, conspiracy, history, and science. With your hosts, Al Warren, Mike Brown, Julie Saab, Michael Butterfield, Dr. Joseph Usinski, and Michael Hawley. Heard on KCAA 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 105.0 AM Palm Springs. Joining us is uh, Rebecca Roth. Thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. Well, I decided I would write this book, and I, at the very first, I wanted to introduce a Middle Eastern character. Uh, I just wanted a name of, of a character, and I didn't really have one. And so I thought, well, I'll just Google search those 9-11 hijackers right. and grab a first name from one and a last name from the other and just carry on with my book. And up in front of me shot, shot a, and in my Google search, a uh, BBC article dated September 23, 2001. It told me that the Saudi government was suing the FBI for stealing the identity and claiming that six of their citizens were uh, falsely accused of being a 9-11 hijackers. And they were still alive. And, and a couple of them were actually airline pilots. But I read this BBC article, I thought, Hey, wait a minute. Now, I saw the, what they wanted us to believe. I watched that second plane crash into the tower, right. and that's exactly when I turned my television on was to see that, that moment, and I saw it over and over and over again. And um, 
I thought, well, how can these six guys be alive? And the fact then that the FBI was being sued by the Saudi government uh, over these six citizens of theirs, a couple of them had never visited even the United States, and they used their passport photos and their home addresses. And I thought, oh, what a nightmare for these people. They were suing the government, and I never could find if they settled out of court or what, but those same six guys are still on the list of 19 hijackers. So they never resolved that case? Not that I know, not that I could find. And that a fact that I found, and as I continued to look then, I've actually found 10 of the 19 suspected, I have to use that word now, hijackers, accused hijackers of the 9-11 event are still alive. What went through your mind but back then when you saw the article and you saw that these people were being accused and they had nothing to do with it? Yeah, I was just totally blown away. Well, what happened then, I put my novel on hold and I just started looking into the entire 9-11 event. What did you find about the calls? Well, that's kind of what I did. <clears throat> I, uh, I took these plain, uh, the phone calls one by one and methodically went through. And since I was a flight attendant for so long and a purser, I put my old flight attendant shoes back on and I started. And I started with Flight 11 and Flight 11... Uh, well, just to, uh, so you know that two flight attendants called out from that plane. There were almost a uh, hundred people, just shy of a hundred people, between the crew and the passengers on board that day, yet only two people called out. We were told by the official story, the government, that <clears throat> that one girl, uh, Amy Sweeney, called her supervisor and that she called, according to her supervisor, on her cell phone. Well, I knew that was an impossibility to do that from altitude. And so the FBI tried to, of course, change that later on to be an air phone, but that, they're not much better than a cell phone. And one of the reasons why that uh, Boeing 757 for American didn't have an air phone on was that they were so ineffective and that oftentimes uh, we, we found they were so poorly, uh, the, the the, it's hard to imagine how far we've come in 15 years or so. But um, the, the phones didn't work. If you maybe could use one phone in first class or one in, in a coach, but if you had somebody on the phone in first class, and oftentimes that second phone couldn't even connect. And they were very expensive, and their quality was not very good. And so oftentimes you'd just pay $13 a minute for static, or the phone would call would drop. And so they were not much better than, uh, <laughs> than trying to use a cell phone. A cell phone was impossible at altitude. And what happened was there were two flight attendants that called in. They called in at the same exact minute, and that's about 20 minutes after they left Boston. And uh, I'd flown out of Boston, so I had a pretty good idea where the territory was, where they were, where they were actually located. And um, Betty Ong was the first flight attendant. She called the reservations, which was a very unusual place for any employee to call because you were always on call on hold for 20 minutes or so and in an emergency like a hijacking would be I thought, well that's the craziest phone number you'd call you could call your supervisor or or someone else but a reservation so it's not easy for us to get through either uh, so uh, Betty Ong calls in and she calls to a reservations uh, a gal and the first thing Betty Ong says I, I couldn't even believe what I was reading she says he as in one hijacker not the five or four that the government said, one. He 
has sprayed pepper spray or mace or something in business class and we can't breathe in business class. She tells the uh, reservations gal that she's seated at 3R, which is the aft jump seat, which is a, on that aircraft it's about 150 feet, 159 feet away from business class. So it's kind of a long distance. However, let me just give you an inside track. If you are in a pressurized aircraft, at altitude, which they were supposed to be, and someone sprays cheap perfume, mace, pepper spray, or something else inside that cabin. And uh, even if you'll remember the days of when we had smoking on board and it was only the front half or the back half of the plane, everyone smelled the smoke. Oh, yeah. Well, on the same kind of thing with pepper spray or mace, within two to three minutes, everyone on the aircraft, including the hijackers, the pilots, the crew members and all the passengers would be suffering from the effects of the mace. And yet, she sat on the phone for 27 minutes and never coughed or complained about the pepper spray or mace. And I realized right then and there that that aircraft was no longer pressurized. Then she went on to say something else that only a flight attendant maybe could hear. She said, he stood upstairs. And there are no stairs on the 767. There are only stairs on the 747. And she's on the 767 where there are no stairs. But there are stairs in a hangar. And in every hangar there are stairs. Because hangars are real tall buildings. And the bigger the airplane, the taller the building. And that uh, level is usually full of office space up there. And there are oftentimes stairs in every corner of a hangar if it's a large one. And so she goes on to continue to talk about this, and she then says, we're the first. And they were the first. That Flight 11 was the first plane that we were told hit the North Tower, the very first event of that day. And I thought, well, how would she have known they were going to be the first if someone hadn't told her? And then it started to look to me like they were actually on the ground, no longer pressurized, or she would have been suffering from the mace or pepper spray, and that they were in a hangar where there were stairs that the hijacker, he stood at, or went, stood up. And then when she said they were the first, I realized that someone had told her the scenario of the day, and that she had been briefed by someone on what possibly was presented to them as a drill. And then I, I continued to look into these two flight attendants' words very, very carefully because at this point I realized, and I honestly, I got to that point and I said to my husband, nobody else has heard her words with the ears of a flight attendant. Right. And I realized that they were in fact in a hangar on the ground somewhere, and she was being told the scenario of the day by what she had just said. And then she also said, we're up in the air. And then she said, I don't know, but we might be being hijacked. And I thought, well, that's odd. Of course, a hijacking only takes place in the air, and no flight attendant would have to explain they were in the air unless someone was telling her, that she better convince whoever she was talking to that they were in the air or that the scenario was that she was calling from the plane. 
and that they were in the air, because there's no reason for her to say that, because the hijacking only takes place in a plane in the air, and if it took place on the ground, we'd open the doors and get the passengers out and ourselves. So to say in the air made me realize that she was trying to convince the, the person on the other end of the phone call that they were in fact in the air. No flight attendant would have said that. And so I went from her to Amy Sweeney. Amy Sweeney was the other flight attendant that called in. She called her supervisor in Boston that she had just checked out with that morning. And she told him that the hijacker was in 9B. And again, she referred to the hijacker as one person, a he, only one. Unlike the official story, I mean, I read the official story, I heard it all just like you did on the television. Right. And then, I, and then she calls back to her supervisor and she says, I made a mistake. And I thought to myself, no, no flight attendant would ever make that mistake. And let me tell you why. In a hijacking, we had set protocols. In the time of 9-11, they were called the common strategy. It was set up by the FAA from the 70s. And that common strategy was steps and procedures and code words that we were to follow step by step. And what I was seeing with these two flight attendants is neither one of them were really following the steps. And so in a hijacking, what we would do is we would coordinate if we talked to somebody on the ground or the pilots talked to somebody on the ground once they found out that we were being hijacked, and there was a set of protocols to follow. And once we got on the ground, a, some sort of liberation force, like a Delta force, Navy SEALs, FBI, somebody would come on, storm the aircraft, and uh, rescue the hostages or the passengers and crew from the hijacker. And if I told them through the pilots or you know, through somebody I was talking to on the ground somehow, uh, that the hijacker was in 9B and he really wasn't a hijacker, that guy could potentially be killed innocently, and it's a mistake no flight attendant would have ever made. And so um, I thought, well, that's really weird. She called back and she said, no, I made a mistake. 9B has actually been stabbed, and um, the hijackers are in 10A and B, so the hijackers were right behind him. Well, I did a little research on who was the passenger in 9B, and lo and behold, was I shocked to hear this. He was a highly trained assassin for a foreign government, and he was also trained in anti-hijacking procedures and in hostage rescue. When hostage rescues, who would have come and liberated the plane? And that's the, like the Delta Force, and we have our special operations guys that are trained to do what's called hostage rescue as well. And here he was on board. Now, I did a little research on him. He was actually with the Israeli Defense Forces Special Operations Unit called Sayeret Met Call. And he was uh, fluent in English. He grew up in Denver, Colorado. He was uh, fluent in Arabic, and he was fluent in Hebrew. So we are expected to believe that a trained assassin and an anti-hijacking specialist who was fluent in the language being spoken by the flight by the hijackers sitting in the row behind him. Think about this for a minute. The last time you flew and you overheard the people talking in the row behind you, sometimes we overhear embarrassing conversations or arguments even because yeah. yeah. it's real easy when they're less than two feet away from your ear planning what was referred to as the new Pearl Harbor of 9-11. And he did nothing. And on their way to the cockpit to commandeer it, these two five foot six, five foot seven hijackers 
decided they'd stab him with the plastic box cutter and kill him. Do you believe that story? Because that is the official story. If you can believe that, you're stretching your imagination real far. And you're no longer in using logic. So take your hand and slap yourself across the face. <laughs> let, me, let me give you a reality check. A highly trained assassin from the Sayerat Met Call, let me tell you this, he is trained to kill people. Now, I did a little research on him, and his friends from the Israeli Defense Forces said of him that he could kill any human being with a pen and a credit card, and he was a businessman traveling on business, and he had a pen and a credit card with him. He was also fluent in the language the hijackers were planning to take over the cockpit, sitting right behind him. So, okay, that just gave me a wake-up call. I hope you slapped yourself so you can get that wake-up call, too, because that's exactly when it hit me. That It wasn't hijackers on board. It was handlers on board. As I continued to look into the other flight attendant, Amy Sweeney's, uh, what information she was giving to the company through her supervisor, after she made the mistake no flight attendant would ever make by labeling an innocent person as a, as a terrorist or hijacker. Um, she also said that, that 9B was being tended to by a doctor and a nurse, and she said that a, uh, Betty Ong was seated with her in the second to the last row in coach. Again, they're about 150 to 159 feet away from the cockpit, first class, business class, the front section of the aircraft, so it's very hard to know what's going on up there. They're sitting in passenger seats. According to Amy Sweeney, they were sitting together in the second to the last row. But remember, Betty Ong said, and she said this about ten times, that she was seated in her jump seat at 3R, which is quite a ways away from the last row in coach. And so I'm seeing that, okay, there's another problem here, because it's very important in a hijacking that you give the same information. And it can't be two things. Those girls are in two different locations. They're in, either in a coach seat together or one is in a coach seat and one is in her jump seat. And they're both giving this information. And then Betty Ong said that they pitched for a doctor or medical personnel and no one showed up. So we have someone saying that a doctor and a nurse are attending in 9B, and we have someone else saying there's nobody to help him. That's wrong. That can't happen. In real life, that doesn't happen. And so what I started to go through, and I am reading an FBI transcript. Yeah. <laughs> and when I start to go through this with my flight attendant mind, I went, uh-oh, here we have a highly trained assassin. This is a man who is trained to kill people, assassin people. Remember JFK? Yeah. Okay. And we have a guy who's trained in hostage rescue, and we have a guy that's an anti-hijacking specialist. That tells me he knows a lot about inside an airplane, how the PA system works, how flight crews work, where we keep our cockpit key, how the doors work, how the windows work, what our procedures are to follow in a hijacking. He's been trained in that. And yet we're expected to believe he was killed with a plastic box cutter. By the way, I actually found a picture of the type of box cutter they claimed was used because they claim that they found one. One of the only things they found from Flight 93 in the ditch at Shanksville, no titanium engine parts, nothing, but a plastic box cutter did show up along with the paper passport from one of the hijackers. Oh. And it's one, of the, it's one of the bright yellow plastic ones that you can get at Lowe's Hardware or Home Depot, and they're real cheap. 
and they break real easily. And they are serrated about every quarter inch. The blade is meant to break off. They're very frustrating to use on even cardboard. You can imagine decapitating someone with one. Stretch, stretch, stretch that imagination. Yeah, because it's really, really hard to, to take <laughs> someone's head off, too, right? It's well, yeah, I mean, if you want to try to uh, do what they, the official government 9-11 story wants you to believe, go ahead and buy a chicken and go to Lowe's Hardware or Home Depot, whatever one is convenient for you, and pick up one of those bright yellow. Uh, and these are not linoleum cutters. These are the plastic. Their handle is about four or five inches long, and they're about a half inch wide. They're bright yellow, like neon yellow. And you can see, you can flip up that little razor, uh, razor blade, and it's serrated. That's exactly the one they show. You can find a Google image of it and see, get the right one. Try to go ahead and cut up a chicken for dinner. Oh, I could hardly cut open a box with those things. They break exactly. all the time. And so that's the official story. They want us to believe that that's what they use to hijack these airplanes and to kill a, a trained assassin. Okay, so we were expected to really stretch our minds. And then what happened is um, nobody really looked that closely and nobody really questioned like I did. And what, so what I was seeing was that the scenario was that these flight attendants were told uh, that they were, in fact, the first of what, however many. I don't know. Maybe they told them four, but I'm thinking they might have actually wanted to have another plane. I, they might have said, you'll be just be the, we're the first, just like Betty Ong said. There's no way that Betty Ong knew that they were the first plane to be hijacked unless someone told her. And so what happened to me then? I started going into the next flight. The next flight phone calls were made, again, two people were made phone calls. And the interesting thing about those two, one was a passenger named Peter Hansen. Peter was 32 years old at the time, was traveling with his wife and small daughter. And he called his dad, and he told his dad that the airline hostess had been stabbed three minutes before impact into the South Tower, according to the official story. And we have never been called airline hostess in the United States of America. And Peter Hansen was an American. Airline hostess is a term used in the Middle East and Asia. El Al, the Israeli airline, uses that term, but we don't. We've been called flight attendants since 1968, and before that we were called stewardesses until in the late 60s we started hiring men to become flight attendants. And we've always been referred to as either stewardess or flight attendant. Yeah, that's how I've always known it. And so that was a red flag for me because that means someone was telling him to say that because he wouldn't have said that, in other words, because it's not the way we would speak as Americans. And Canadians don't use that either. So I thought, well, that's really odd. And here it is, three minutes before impact, and then he says this to his dad. He says, I think the, the terrorists, are, hijackers, are going to fly us to Chicago, and fly us into a building. And there's no way before 9-11 any one of us would have ever dreamed that as a scenario. And I thought, again, somebody told him what the scenario was. Okay, so that kind of got me. And then he called his dad back again, and he said, well, a stewardess was, was stabbed. And so, again, he used terminology that was really uncommon for a gentleman his age. His entire lifetime, we'd been called flight attendants. The guy was 32 in 2001. And then another guy called. He was a passenger. 
and his name was Brian Sweeney. He was, uh, according to the FBI document, an F-14 pilot. He served in the Gulf War of 91. He trained in Miramar, California as a Top Gun type pilot. And, you know, I'd actually flown with some Top Gun guys that were trained there. Blue Angels train at Miramar. These guys also are trained in uh, combat and hand-to-hand you know, -hand in case they crash down and become a prisoner of war or have to survive. They've got an incredible training. Brian Sweeney was six foot two, 225 pounds, and his friends said of him that he could kill any human being with his bare hands. Now, on the hijacking day, at three minutes before impact to 9-11, he called his mommy. And he told his mom that he was on a plane, been hijacked, didn't mention the hijackers or anything, wasn't looking good, he told her. And then she asked him where he was, and she, he looks out the window three minutes before impact to Manhattan. Twin Towers. Think about this. And he says, we're over Ohio. And I thought, well, that's a weird thing to say because he's a pilot. <laughs> Even passengers know Manhattan when they see it. New York is like 365 square miles. You're in New York for a very long time. And if you're close enough to see the ground, which he was, three minutes before impact, um, I could actually look at an NTSB chart and tell you exactly where they were, but they were probably six, 7,000 feet at the maximum. He would know where he was. And then he said to his mother... We're, and this is eight minutes after the, the first passengers realized they were hijacked and started making their phone calls. We're thinking about taking over the cockpit from the hijackers, a bunch of us passengers. And let me tell you a little secret about flight attendants. You think you're going to take over anything in our airplane? You're wrong. We are highly trained to handle every emergency, including hijackings. And we would have told him to sit down and shut up in no uncertain terms. No one is going to take over the cockpit or the aisle. We train for that. That's what we do. That's who we are. And that scenario was the scenario from Flight 93, let's roll, Todd Beamer, and the heroes of Flight 93 that they made the movies about. Right. Yeah. How did he know? How did he know that scenario? unless he was either a handler, a planner, or someone had told him of the scenario for later on that day, let's roll. Think about that. And that's what he said. And let me tell you again, if anybody wants to press this, go ahead the next time you fly, <laughs> try to take over anything in the aisle. You sure as hell aren't going to do it in a hijacking. Because that's the only reason flight attendants are at work is for your safety. That's what we train for. That's why we look at the faces. That's why we're given names of any potential hijackers that might be problems for us in the, each our year in our yearly training. So that scenario, I realized, was painted by someone that didn't know how we're trained, and they didn't know how mean we can get if you push us as a <laughs> terrorist, or as a passenger. We're not going to put up with it. You're not going to take control. And then I thought that was really weird. So here at the second plane, we again have two people calling out, two people knowing the scenario. Betty Ong said we're the first on that first one. They're giving conflicting information about the passenger and the hijacker. And then on the next plane, we've got two people that think they're going to, one, take over the cockpit, the scenario of the last flight of the day, 93, and someone else that said they think the terrorists are going to fly them into a building in Chicago. So obviously we've got two planes with 
two sets of callers that have been given a scenario, and that's what they're telling on their phone calls. Then on the third flight, that's flight 77, this is really interesting. Again, we have two people that call out. Is this quitting coincidental to you? There is no coincidence. Two people call out. I know, it's really interesting. As I started looking at this, I said, wow, this is very weird. It's a very poorly written script, and I really busted it wide open in the book. And I try to take the reader step by step through the life of a flight attendant, through... Uh, the understanding of what happens in emergencies and, and when there's accidents and how it affects all of us across the board in the industry because we're all big one, one big huge family. All airline people, pilots, flight attendants from all uh, airlines are somewhat connected by our, our uh, careers. And so um, on flight 77, we had a flight attendant call in and she called her mom and dad. The last place you would call. If you're going to make a phone call, and by the way, just so you know, the common strategy, the FAA protocols for hijacking, did not include making phone calls. Because in real life, if there was a real hijacker on, and he caught you with a, any kind of a phone to your ear, the chances are you'd be dead. Yeah. And yeah. so you couldn't really be, you wouldn't want to be making phone calls. Here's the, uh, what you would have wanted to do, uh, word for word from the FAA. You want to sit down and not draw attention to yourself. And so making the phone calls in, in themselves was odd behavior. But she called her mom and dad. Her, he was, she was a relatively new flight attendant, but still no excuse. We're all trained in initial training what to do. And she said, we've been hijacked. Call American Airlines and let them know. We're up in the air. Again, <laughs> she has to tell them that hijacking is taking place in the air. And again, you would not call your mom and dad to worry them. You would call, if you were going to make a phone call, you would call the right people. A supervisor would probably be the closest thing to a right person to call, as that one gal did. But you wouldn't call your mom and dad. You just They'd flip out. They would get upset. They wouldn't know what to do, who to call, what to say, and maybe they wouldn't even or, uh, convey your message correctly because they'd be so shook up. This is their baby, their little girl. And so that was just very odd again. And then one of my very favorite characters, and this is very interesting, Barbara Olson, CNN commentator, calls into her husband, who was working for George Bush, W. Bush Jr., his, uh, department, uh, his uh, department of Justice. He, he was, her husband was Ted Olson, the Solicitor General of the United States Department of Justice. And she calls his office, and I, apparently she doesn't have a direct number to him because she called through his secretary. <laughs> okay, so just think about that for a moment. I mean, okay, if you know someone important, like let's say you're married to maybe a president or a congressman or a senator, it's your spouse. You have a phone number to call their pocket, right? Yeah. Uh, and so we're led to believe, the official story, it's kind of convoluted, but uh, she calls in and the secretary gets Ted on the phone. They uh, have three or four little snippets of phone calls, and she's the one who tells uh, the story that these are box cutters that have been used. She also says something else that's really unusual uh, for a flight attendant or airline person to hear. She says that the terrorists, the hijackers, have herded them all to the very back section of the airplane and that they are all sitting back there. And she references... She doesn't know what to do, so she wants Ted to tell her, what shall I tell the pilots? What shall, what shall we do? It sounds like the pilots are there, but she never really says that. And um, it's very kind of interesting, uh, the, the stuff that she does. Well, then Ted 
I'm, I have no, I don't know a woman that wouldn't kill her husband, and she'd come back from the grave to kill him after this. Ted is so upset that day that he runs right over to a CNN studio to tell his story about how his wife called in and told that they had box cutters and they were of Middle Eastern descent. And this Middle Eastern descent, the terminology used that way was used in a lot of the phone calls. And so he is quickly over at the CNN studio and his story starts to change. And this becomes very interesting because when the Zechariah Massawi trial, who was referred to as the 20th hijacker, and even in the uh, official 9-11 commission hearings, Barbara Olson's phone calls are completely not mentioned, much like Building 7 that fell down at 520 that afternoon. Not mentioned. Now, Ted, he says that she calls collect from her cell phone, and we all know that that's not possible. And he says this on CNN. And then he says, no, she, she, called, um, she called from the air phone, the air, airplane phone. And... Well, we know that's not possible, too, because as of January 31st, 2001, American Airlines 757s didn't have any earphones that were functioning. They were all, um, you know, disengaged. They were either removed from the airplane or no longer functioning. They were uh, unplugged. They weren't working. And so what would happen is the interiors, as they'd go in for their sea check, they would remove those planes because, as I said at the beginning, they didn't work very well. So they would drop your calls. It's very hard to stay on a call. One, they were expensive, but two, they, the mechanism of which they worked was very similar, in a sense, to cell phones, and it wasn't a quality that... It, that worked with airplanes moving that speed that they do. So they just weren't effective. Yeah. So anyway, that's very interesting that Ted Olson, uh, he had so many stories that uh, none of them could have been true. I, I don't have an explanation for that. However, I have a lot of people that have come forward since the book came out and that have read the book that really question and think that Barbara Olson might have been part of the planners and maybe one of the hijackers on board. I don't know. I, I, don't, I never really have looked into her uh, that deeply. Uh, but it's very interesting that that whole story was left out of the official story. Yeah. Her phone calls to the Solicitor General for the President of the United States, George W. Bush. Sands are kind of involved with some of this, too. And there's some interesting connections to the Bush family. For instance, George Bush Sr. was having a meeting with uh, the senior bin Laden family member, uh, who's also a member of the Carlisle Group the day before. And so there's a lot of interesting uh, connections to a lot of the different Bush family members, and they connect through the security at the World Trade Center towers and several other places throughout. I'm sure we don't have time to go into that, but uh, it's very fascinating to find the uh, connections to lots of people inside the U.S. government. And there's a lot of thought because of the way he reacted, like when he was in that uh, uh, schoolroom. Uh, mm -hmm. talking to kids and how he didn't really react quickly. The Secret Service didn't react the way they should to protect our president, whoever our president is, whether we like him or not. Right. Their job is to keep our president safe. And when you see Andrew Card in those, you can kind of see this online, you can find the YouTubes and stuff, Andrew Card goes and whispers in his ear, that's after the second plane hit. And at that point, you'll remember, most Americans thought we were under attack. Right. That was our Pearl Harbor. We were...
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Have it to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Experiencing that, I know how I reacted. And so we know that he was being told that after the second plane hit and he sat there. That was at 9.03 when that plane hit. And so he sat there in that school until after 9.30. And you would think, wouldn't you, that the Secret Service would have said, Mr. President, we're out of here. Yeah. And he wouldn't, have, he wouldn't have sat there with those kids. Not only were, was he in danger, but the kids were too. So I found the Secret Service behavior was most telling, that they yeah. didn't protect him. Yeah. That told me that they knew that it, he wasn't in danger. Yeah, because you would have thought they would have just grabbed him and ran. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because it was a thought that, that there was some sort of an attack going on, uh, you know, two planes crashed into two buildings, mm-hmm. everybody was scrambling. You would think that you would take the yeah. president, well, the vice by president. The, mm-hmm. By the time that Andrew Card was telling the president that, you had people on CNN t- using the word terrorism. Right then, already, they were using the word terrorism and attack. And you can go back and see this, America under attack right across the lower banner on CNN. And that happened right away. And, and so a right in conjunction certainly happened long before he left that elementary school. Our guest tonight is Rebecca Roth, the subject, the 
methodical illusion of the 911 World Trade Center attack. We'll be back right after these words. We now return you to our program. What I did when I did this research, I just used logic and common sense. I didn't have a of any agenda. I'm not political. I'm not left. I'm not right. I'm an American. And I didn't have an axe to grind with Arabs, Muslims, Jews, Catholics, <laughs> Protestants, anyone else. I just wanted to find the truth. And so when I looked at this, I used, um, I, I studied hard sciences in college, uh, organic chemistry, biochemistry. So I was into research. I like to do that, and I, I'm able to stay on track and research that way. And when I went into this research, I, I used common sense of a scientist. And when we're talking about how the Secret Service of the United States, that protect the President of the United States, that knew we were under attack, and it was actually being shown on CNN as an attack, uh, terrorism was used right away, the word was out there right on the banner, that the Secret Service itself didn't react the way they should in a terrorist attack, told me everything. I mean, my common sense just went, they had to have known the truth. The truth was that this was a setup, and that they knew that the president was never in any danger, because it would be reflex to them, just like a flight attendant would be reflex, that if a passenger got up, in a hijacking situation, we would have pushed him back in his seat and said, sit down and shut up. Don't get up again. And that would be a command to you as a passenger. If you think you're going to get up and fill coffee pots with hot water and run up the aisle and take the cockpit back that way, I'm going to tell you another reason that's not going to happen. Not only would no flight attendant crew members let you do that, in a hijacking, but the box that sits between the captain and the co-pilot is the flight computer that is a bit sensitive to water and liquid. Like China syndrome, your airplane would not be flying well. So the last thing we would do when we hand the captain a glass of juice or water or coffee, it goes over his left shoulder, over by the window that wraps around the cockpit, and we say, Captain Johnson, your coffee's coming in off to the left. And he knows to turn around there. Because if he accidentally turns around to the right, that computer is sitting right under his right shoulder. And your hand with that coffee could be hit, or you could hit turbulence. And that liquid jumps out. And it doesn't take much to do some computer damage to the computer right there. The last thing any flight crews would allow is three or four passengers with hot water or hot coffee in coffee pots running into the cockpit, which, oh, by the way, that was the scenario that we are led to believe happened on Flight 93 while the aircraft, according to the FAA and the National Transportation Safety Board, was coming out of the sky 6 to 10,000 feet per minute at an an angle of 40-plus degrees and at one point upside down. It's a scenario that's impossible. All the calls from Flight 93, and there were a lot of them, there were 30-some, by uh, around 11 passengers and a couple flight attendants. Well, there was 11 calls from 11 people. I think nine passengers and two flight attendants were taken off the plane and were made phone calls. And those phone calls were only to create heroes. And another thing that's interesting about one of the characters that was on the phone to his wife the whole time. He also was a, a judo champion, a black belt in judo. He's six foot two, 225 pounds, much like the guy that was the fighter pilot, the top gun guy. Yep. 
uh, he sat on the phone and talked to his wife the whole time up until the very minute that we are led to believe the takeover of the cockpit supposedly took place. Well, I looked into all of those characters that supposedly were the heroes of Flight 93, Let's Roll, and those other guys. Yeah. Well, they were all on the phone in separate rows and coach, not even close to each other, on phone calls to other people. They didn't have any planning time. Interestingly enough. The judo champion, he also just happens to be a Jewish gentleman. Uh, I I believe he was 33 years old. Nice young age for a special operations guy, just like the others that I found. They are potentially handlers. Instead of uh, using some of that judo he had, he let those five foot six. By the way, the, um, the terrorists, none of them were very big. On Flight 93, the guys were um, about five foot seven, <laughs> five <Yeah>. foot eight. <laughs> I mean, they're not big men. They were not six foot two. They weren't uh, judo champs. None of them were trained in combat, hand-to-hand combat, anything else. They had plastic box cutters, well, maybe. there you go. They had plastic box cutter. They didn't need to be. <laughs> <laughs> and so what I, what I kind of was seeing is that all of the calls that were made on flight from Flight 93, a lot of the callers never mentioned uh, terrorists or hijackers, but they knew they were going to be killed. And you can tell by the things that they said to the caller. And they were almost all cell phone calls. And that plane supposedly took off at 8.42. And the fo- phone calls actually started one minute prior to the pilots knowing they were hijacked. The passengers somehow knew one minute prior at 9.27, a guy from California named Tom Burnett called his wife. Now, this is an interesting story because Dina Burnett was a retired flight attendant. And when she looked at her caller ID, it said Tom's cell. And so she knew, just like I would, that he wasn't on board for 45 minutes. And so she picked up the phone. She said, Tom, are you okay? What's up? You know, obviously thinking he didn't get on his flight. And so he tells her again, we're in the air. I'm on a flight that's been hijacked. And again, he uses that term, we're in the air. And then this is one minute before the plane was officially hijacked. One minute before, somehow, a passenger knows they're hijacked. And he calls his wife, and he calls her several times, like four times during that day, and tells her there's a gun on board, that the hijackers have a gun, one guy has a gun. When the FBI gets to her house, they they, uh, argue that point with her. And so I I think the reason they argue that point with her is that they didn't want the security company to be tagged because guess who ran security at Boston, Washington, Dulles, and Newark for those two airlines? Uh It was a company called uh, ITCS, and they were an Israeli security company, not a U.S. corporation, an Israeli security company. Coincidentally. So what I'm finding as I'm looking through this is this weird connection. We've got an Israeli trained assassin on Flight 93. We have a Jewish judo champion, or excuse me, on Flight 11. On, on Flight 93, we have a Jewish American judo champion who chooses to do nothing but sit and talk on the phone to his wife. And then I start to look at some of the other passengers on board. The gentleman on Flight 175 
I couldn't find out who he worked for until after my book was published. And I kept looking because I'm, I'm looking now at all the handlers. Because I've also been contacted by people from American Airlines. They're guaranteed that there were no Arab hijackers on the real passenger manifest. And another interesting thing I found out after I published the book, and I know most people don't know this because I didn't and I paid close attention, the FBI originally claimed that they had the passenger manifest, and this is really important that you understand this. This is your FBI telling you, America, that they have the passenger manifest right away from flight, uh, the four flights, and that these 19 Arab hijackers, of those, there were four different names originally that you don't even know switched out. Those four people, three of them showed up alive. So they changed them in that about 72 hours into the event. They changed those four names, but not the other guys that are the Saudi Air and Air Tunisia pilots and the guys that have, are working outside of Riyadh in an energy uh, business that have never seen America, never didn't even know what a Pennsylvania was. They're still alive. So they had these four people that they said, the FBI claimed, they were actually on the passenger manifest. They put it out there. It was on CNN. One of these characters is an FAA employee in aviation safety based in Florida. His brother had been killed one year earlier on September 11, 2000, dead. So, of course, he calls. He's an FAA employee. He calls in and he says, I'm not a hijacker. They're telling everybody on TV that I'm a, me and my brother, my brother's been dead for a year. We weren't, we're not on the passenger manifest. How could we be on the passenger manifest? I was at work. I'm an FAA employee. The other two gentlemen, I believe they were also brothers, uh, they showed up uh, alive and well and also not dead, not terrorists, and falsely accused. But my point to you is the FBI told you, America, that these four names were on the passenger manifest that they were looking at and they had in their hand. They were lying to you. And until those people showed up, three of them alive, one of them dead, they didn't change their story. That should, that should hit home with you. That's the FBI. That is called the Federal Bureau of Investigation. They are the biggest part of the cover-up on 9-11. I found in an FBI document potentially one, if not two, women involved. And it's all in the book because I used FBI documents. Now, if readers want to see those documents or want to know where, where I found them, you can easily contact me through email or contact button on my website, methodicalillusion.com, and I'm happy to send this to you because I found most of the stuff online. And by the way, um, when I decided, I wrote this book two years before I put it out, when I decided to put it out to the public, um, I continued looking, and when I was in final edit, I found the women involved. And I felt uh, a spiritual presence in my room when I found that. And when I, I uh, basically told my husband, I have to add something to this chapter. I have to add the fact that the FBI is covering up women involved, perpetrators, planners, handlers. And you don't even know they exist. And I'm the only 9-11 truth movement investigator to this 
day that has ever found them. And they're right there online uh, in an FBI document. I just got it off the Internet. So that's a, I don't know, SlideShare or one of those yeah. scribed documents, PDF. Was there a specific reason that they didn't want to come forward with, with two women being involved? Because they want you to believe there were 19 Arabs. Because these women were not Arabs. And a lot of the Arabs they accused on the list, like isn't there 10 of them that are still alive that were suing FBI? Yeah, and I never could find out how that lawsuit was settled. It was the Saudi government suing the FBI for stealing the identity. They posted not just their photos, and these were like passport photos from their ID, but they also posted their home addresses to these innocent people. And by the way, uh, six of those people right now are, st are still on the official list as being dead and hijackers. And I've been contacted since the book came out by some very interesting people. Uh, one of them is someone who's living in Turkey. And apparently that these people that have been uh, accused of being hijackers on the 9-11 event have been on television. And so they're looking for YouTubes and they're going to translate or put some, uh, what do you call those little uh, subtitles and so that um, they're going to send those to me when they can find them, that these people have gone on television and they are still alive. But they are uh, the official 9-11 story hijackers that are dead that did this. Well, uh, we haven't got to this on air here. I know what's going to happen. but <laughs> um, So let's talk about the planes themselves. So what are you um, telling the audience happened to the planes? Well, this is what, what I, when I went through all of these phone calls and I saw that Flight 93, those calls were all just to grab our emotions, to get us emotionally hooked into this. These are people that were calling to say goodbye and I love you. And let me just tell you that there's a very interesting thing your readers, our listeners, excuse me, I don't know, maybe you blog too, um, your listeners can look this up and you can look up a flight attendant from Flight 93, that's the one that went into Shanksville supposedly, on Wikipedia, you can use Wikipedia because they have this here, and you can just put C.C. Lyles, at C-E-E-C-E-E-L-Y-L-E-S, Flight 93, and if you find the Wikipedia post on her, you'll find some little players, and just play those. One of them is a recording that she left at 9.47 a.m., about 15 to 17 minutes before the plane crashed in Shanksville. This is about 10 minutes before the Let's Roll event. We're going to take over the cockpit. She calls in, and there is a recording, and you can hear this. And it's, you'll hear the, the answering machine put the time stamp. I want to say it's 947, something along that line. And she leaves a message to say goodbye to her husband and her kids. And at the end of her, she knows she's going to be killed. You can tell she starts crying at the end. She hands the phone to somebody. You can hear it. And it's very much that sound where, you know, you can hear, <laughs> like when someone you'd hand a receiver to somebody. Or maybe if you handed your cell phone to someone, they, they touch over the microphone part. You can hear that. I hope you could hear that on the yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay. So you hear that. And when you hear that, you want to tune, you know, especially if you're listening with headsets, turn it way up because you're going to hear a woman's voice tell a flight attendant, Cece Lyles, she did great. And you hear her say, you did great at the end of that. 
And go ahead and right-click and save it if you can, because the government will be removing this. Because every time I do an interview, I tell people to go do that. And you're going to find that, let me tell you this, that at that point, 15 minutes before impact, nobody's telling the flight attendant she did great for making a phone call yeah. to <laughs> say goodbye to her husband and her children. Yeah. I found this information online right there in Wikipedia right in front of our face and so much like the Illuminati loves to do they love to put it right in your face much like March of 2001 they put this TV show called The Lone Gunman and basically was the scenario where these planes have been taken over uh, and were being flown into the World Trade Center how surprise surprise how this happens okay so you're going to ask the question what happened to the planes how did this happen remember that Betty Ong said she didn't know but she might be being hijacked what that told me was anybody that's a flight attendant that's in a hijacking knows they're being hijacked there's no doubt about it there's a hijacker with demands and you know it. So for her to say, I don't know, something's wrong, but she didn't know what it was. She also had no reason to phone the cockpit uh, that early on in the flight working the aft galley or her 3R jump seat. That would be something only the lead flight attendant or purser would be calling the cockpit for one reason. Uh, and so I thought, well, you know what? The plane must have been descending or something. There must have been some reason because why would she say that? Because there's no reason that that person would be wanting or needing to call the cockpit. She could call the lead flight attendant or the purser if she had a question or an issue, but that early on in the flight, there's no reason. So somebody didn't know that. Somebody that planned this didn't know that she shouldn't be calling the cockpit and wouldn't have been calling the cockpit from her work position. So... When I started digging through and <laughs> seeing all this stuff, I'm like, okay, well, I'm starting to see this is a very poorly written script by someone that didn't know that cell phones don't work at altitude, and they don't know what a flight attendant would allow to have happen in the aisle in an emergency kind of hijacking, and they don't know the code words, and they don't know our protocol. And that's why the story came out the way that it did. Now, I remember in the early 90s, there was a, there was a company called SPC Corporation, that sold to Boeing, up there in Seattle where you are, mm -hmm. a, um, a device that fits right into the Boeing onboard flight computers called the Flight Termination System. And this system was sold, listen very carefully to what they said. This system was, is a plug-in device to the onboard flight computer. It was sold to the com some commercial carriers, not all, in the event of a hijacking, and a hijacker took control of the cockpit, we can land the airplane remotely. And so you're probably asking yourselves now, why then didn't they, on that day, they had four cockpits commandeered, why didn't they land those planes remotely? Because those systems were already in use by the perpetrators, planners, and handlers, not 19 Arabs, of the people who did this. Now, when the flight termination system takes over, just so you understand this, the, it uses the same frequency as the flight transponder. It's also referred to as a radio beacon or the transponder code number. Right. It, it also makes it so the pilots can no longer speak to anyone on the ground, other airplanes, or the flight attendants in the back. And another thing that Betty Ong kept saying is, the pilots aren't answering their phone. We can't talk to the pilots. And that told me the flight termination system had landed the aircraft, 
And that would be why she would want to call the cockpit, because on a six-hour flight from coast to coast, she would have been busy fixing breakfast, making coffee, and pulling out very heavy carts that would uh, very much safety-wise need to be locked back into that galley once they started that descent, which they did, because they were on the ground, no longer pressurized 20 minutes after they left Boston. So where did they take the planes? The planes were all taken, and I let the reader know this, and I also teach the reader exactly how I found this out, because there's a website I direct you to. It's real. There's a, there is, this is a novel, and some people have fictitious uh, names and identities and political stance, but there is a novel, but there's a lot of truth wrapped into this novel. So at the end, you can call and ask me <laughs> what's real, what's not. Um, but what I, I found was then all of the phone calls from all four aircraft had to have been made on the ground because it was an impossibility to call from an air phone on Flight 77. Uh, flight 93, that was all 45 minutes into their flight that those calls started to be made. That was at 32 to 39,000 feet elevation, impossible to do. And so what I... What I discovered was that since all these aircraft were loaded up with fuel, they had to have at least a 10,000-foot runway that was not a commercial airport. And I found the location where they all four were brought. The phone calls were then made. And you'll recall at the beginning I told you of each of those first three aircraft, two people made phone calls. And what I believe happened is that um, this base was C-5 transport base, located in Massachusetts. The C-5 transport's larger than a 747. That's the one you'll see on the TheraFlu commercial that opens up, the whole front nose opens up, and they can put tanks and large things in there. And this was a C-5 transport base. And after the book came out and I did a couple of interviews, I got contacted by someone that was in the reserves based there, and I never mentioned in an interview the exact location and she told me the name of the base. And she said she had been based there and that the air, that base had been evacuated. And when they got called up active duty the morning of 9-11, they were locked out of that base. They were put up in hotels off the base for two to three days. And when she heard this story in this interview and what I did when I deconstructed the 9-11 event from a flight attendant's perspective, she said, my heart sunk, and I knew that that's where those four planes were, and now I know why we couldn't get on the base. Pretty thrilling, huh? Yeah. Do you think that there is a purpose behind taking these planes? Is there a reason? The reason is well written. You can also, your listeners can also find this. You just want a Google search project for a new American century. It was called, uh, there was a need for... Uh, you can find out who all the signers were that uh, wanted this and planned this. There was a need for what they referred to actually as a new Pearl Harbor in order to manipulate and get the American public to rally behind seven planned wars in the Middle East. Yes, that was the reason. So it's, it's really, in essence, it's, it's really a way of changing the country Exactly. To accomplish something. So like uh, the Patriot Act and, mm-hmm. and uh, the whole Homeland Security, like everything changed mm-hmm. really quickly afterwards. 
Exactly. And very true. I mean, that's exactly it was what's referred to as commonly as a false flag event. Now, the last flight, there were so many people because all the handlers were free. But what we think happened is that the crews had to have been told they were part of a drill. Ongoing that day were over a dozen military war games across our country. So there was a lot of confusion when the air traffic controllers called uh, to tell NORAD, uh, the northeast sector of NORAD's called NIADS, NORAD, that there was a hijacking on Flight 11. They thought it was part of a drill because some of the drills actually were airplanes being hijacked and flown into buildings. How freaky is that? It's just yeah. like the drill went live, yeah. right? And so it caused a lot of confusion because they didn't know if they should scramble jets. And by the way, because of those scheduled war games that uh, Dick Cheney rescheduled to all happen on September 11th, they were supposed to happen in October, a lot of them. But they rescheduled them to happen on September 11th morning. A lot of our jets that we would have thought were scrambled to save the hijacked aircraft were actually on the other side of the country or out over the Atlantic Ocean. They were not available. So there was a lot of confusion, and a lot of our jets that would have scrambled were, um, <clears throat> were taken out, were somewhere else. They were not available. And uh, when they took the two people off each aircraft, two people were removed to make phone calls. And when they did that, a canister of some type of lethal gas, much more lethal than pepper spray or mace, was put in the aircraft. The door was shut. And before the flight crews could realize it wasn't a drill and it wasn't fake smoke, they uh, had enough gas in them to make them <clears throat> unable to uh, save the passengers or themselves. Yeah. That's how we think it came down once they got there to the hangars. Now, it's very interesting, too, because those first two planes came in about 15 minutes apart. And then, uh, so they had literally quite a few people to get rid of. And they, the gas would have done that. And you'll remember that Peter Hansen, the guy that called his dad three minutes before and thought they were going to go to Chicago, three minutes before impact, he also told his dad something else. This is, again, in FBI documentation. He said the passengers around him, they, they sprayed pepper spray or mace or something, just like the other people said, the same words. He said the people around him were getting sick and vomiting. And you don't customarily get sick or vomit from something unless it's a lethal nerve gas or hydrogen cyanide type of gas. You had a tie also in, in the book to the the third building that collapsed. What, what's the biggest connection with that? That's a real fascinating connection. A lot of people, if you're old enough to remember, there was some scandals going on. Enron. Do you remember Enron? Right. Uh, WorldCom and yeah. Global Crossing. Those three investigations, by the way, were all going to court in October. And all of the evidence for their trials was held in uh, Building 7. And interesting in, about Building 7, Building 7 was never hit by an aircraft, and yet you saw it come down. When I saw it that day at 5.20 in the afternoon in New York, mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't that time where I was, but in New York it was 5.20 in the afternoon, uh, I thought it was an implosion, just like you see uh, the Kingdom or the old casinos in Las Vegas taken down in, in a controlled demolition. I, I thought that's what I was looking at. I had no idea they were claiming that this was actually related to the terrorists until later. Uh, when I saw it come down, my brain said, well, they imploded a building. How'd they get that wired so fast? That was my question. 
And so a lot of people still to this day don't know that three buildings fell down, but actually uh, several more buildings were uh, destroyed. Um, there were a lot of things that happened in, on 9-11 that we don't know about if you just learned from TV, because I didn't know about it until I went into the research. Stolen gold, fake gold bonds, Brady bonds. Uh, they had to funnel in uh, to a very heavily monitored gold market, $240 billion worth of stolen gold. And this was gold and... Um, gold that was stolen actually from the Philippines and through the, uh, the, how we manipulated the financial collapse of the Soviet Union. And by the way, those Brady bonds were expiring September 12, 2001. They were held in the offices of Cantor Fitzgerald, which was exactly targeted by one of the aircraft. There's just no coincidences. That well, just... it's like I have my character Vera Hansen, my protagonist in the book. She questions this. Also, those investigations were being looked at and so was a missing $2.3 trillion that Donald Rumsfeld had, had announced the day before. That was an investigation was going on. The comptroller of the Pentagon was a rabbi named Dov Zakheim. He's an Israeli citizen and a U.S. citizen, a dual citizen. He was the comptroller. That's the money handler, the banker of the United States Pentagon. Interesting thing about him. The investigation that was going on was done in the Office of Naval Intelligence and the Army Auditor's. And guess what? Somehow those terrorists knew that those two offices were the ones that needed to be directly hit and completely taken out inside the Pentagon that day, and they were. End of story. Nobody ever asked and no answers were ever given about the $2.3 trillion that was being investigated missing by the comptroller, good Rabbi Dov Zakheim. An interesting thing about Dov, uh, Rabbi Dov Zakheim, he was the CEO of the company, SPC, that made the flight termination system that remotely took over the aircraft. There, actually, that's how we are using, uh, how we fly our drones around the world still is through the FT, FTS, the flight termination system, by the SPC Corporation. He's no longer the CEO. He went on to work for Booz Allen Hamilton right. uh, after this, and he ran Romney's campaign in foreign uh, <laughs> I guess he was a foreign policy advisor for Mitt Romney for his presidential campaign. And it's, it's very interesting. He's also connected to a, another company. As it's a um, subsidiary of SPC, which he was the CEO of, called Tridata. And Tridata has an interesting history. They did some of the construction right after the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center. They're the only com company in the United States to ever have access since the official or original architects, to the blueprints for, for the two towers that fell that day. And he has another interesting group of people that he works with. It's a consortium. And what they do, out of um, Eglin Air Force Base, uh, kind of connected in uh, that area in Florida, I don't even know that this company has a name, but what they do is they refurbish commercial 767s and turn them into military refueling tankers and sell them to militaries around the world. Do you see a little connection to the good Rabbi Dov Zakheim with 9-11? Yeah. How do people get a hold of you and how do they get a hold of your book? Well, you can get the book at any bookstore. It's on Ingram's list. You can go into Barnes & Noble and order it. You, it's a pre-order and it'll come to you in about a week. On uh, Barnes & Noble, you can get the Kindle, which is the second edition. 
the soft back, and within a week it'll come out in a hard back, second edition. Somehow, in the near future, I'm going to switch out the soft back to a second edition. So for a short period of time, only the hard back will be available on Amazon. But if you just wait, the soft back will come as well. The Kindle on Amazon is $9.11. And you can get an autographed copy. It's $20 total with the autograph, the book, and the shipping from my website, which is just methodicalillusion.com. And if you click on to find the autograph uh, book page, uh, it'll take you right to a square, a uh, secure store. None of, our, none of your information is uh, stored with me. So uh, they'll process your credit card and then send an email to the publisher, and it'll get signed and sent to you right away. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.